This is Leaving Laodicea with Steve McCraney, and this is a podcast for those who realize that apathetic, lukewarm, flannel graph faith just isn't going to cut it in the chaos that surrounds us today. We need something more, something different. So join us as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. I, uh, I want us to just get serious about a few things for a minute. I have a tendency, we do this in church a lot, I have a tendency of kind of nibbling around the edges, kind of hoping everybody gets it, but today we're just going to go double barrel, point blank, and make sure that everybody does. And so uh, I, um, I want you to understand some of the situations that we're facing as believers in Christ today. Number one is the times in which we live. I'm 64 years old. I was a kid back during the turbulent 60s, a, a teenager. And, you know, I've seen the, the corruption. I remember when Nixon, you know, resigned and all the stuff was going on. I had friends who had older brothers that were killed during the Vietnam War. Um, seen some turbulent times in our nation, some corruption that went on. I saw in, even in the, the Hollywood where... Um, you know, the, the profanity all of a sudden began in, being introduced in the movies and then uh, sexuality and nudity, and now it's just broadcast on television all the time. I remember pastors that were laughed at back when I was a kid talked about the fact that rock and roll music and these movies will be the downfall of our nation and the downfall of the generation. And we laughed at them because we loved rock and roll and the movies that were going on. But they were right. They were prophetic and they were right. And now they're all gone. I mean, we live in really turbulent times. And I want you to just think about what's happened in the last several years, from 2016 to 2020. And again, those dates are noteworthy because that's when we had a presidential election. We had the, for the first time in my life, I saw that the news media, who is supposed to be the, the bastion of, of integrity in our country, it's the news media that keeps the government honest. But the news media now is capitulated to the dark side. It was bad prior to 2016. It is amazing what's happening now. We've seen, I mean, you, you can't trust anyone. You can't trust any newscaster. You can't trust anything that they're saying. They actually, members of Congress actually stand up in front of the news media and lie. And when the, when, you know, one or two news reporters ask them about that, the rest of them refuse to even report it. It's almost like it was with Himmler's SS and with Goebbels propaganda machine back in the early thirties in Nazi Germany. It is, it is terrible what's going on in just the last four years. You've got four years ago, uh, prior to 2016, you had a Democratic candidate named Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders was loony. Bernie Sanders is a socialist. Bernie Sanders was talking about giving free stuff to everybody. We're going to pay for all your education bills. We're going to give everybody free health care. We're just going to bankrupt the government and everything. We're just going to give and give. And, 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 and smart-sounding people, people that run even family economies, realize that's not sustainable. That's absolutely crazy. And, and the Democratic ticket, of course, you had Bernie Sanders and Hillary Clinton, but it was rigged because of 
superdelegates that Hillary Clinton would get the Democratic nomination. But, but those ideas, as far-fetched as they were from Bernie Sanders, are conservative today based on what the Democratic platform is. It's like the news media and most of the population did not say, that's just crazy. Instead, we're going to go even further and further and further to the left. So four years from now, what we may seem crazy today will become mainstream. We saw a candidate, Hillary Clinton, who committed felonies, absolute felonies to destroy emails and to, to acid and bleach watch her, com- her computers, and yet she's untouchable. That our government, the Justice Department, the, the system, the deep state in our country right now did nothing about that. It's like she's the Teflon Dawn. I mean, it's amazing. And then if that's not crazy enough, we have this Beto O'Rourke guy who the news media for some reason really kind of like likes to promote because he's good looking and maybe they're thinking it's another Obama coming around. He makes a statement that unless churches and nonprofits and schools embrace the homosexual agenda, we will remove their tax-exempt status. From them. And the crowds cheered, and we go, that will never happen. Give it a couple years. Give it a couple years. This is the direction our nation is going in. And we sit back and act like it's not going to impact us at all. California just signed into law 15 different measures to strengthen or to loosen the, the Second Amendment rights that they have. The new one that they just signed this week basically says that if anyone, your coworker, your neighbor, a family member, um, somebody that just knows you on Facebook can report you as being unstable, that without you being able to defend yourself and without due process of law, you'll be labeled as some person that's not allowed to have a firearm. They will come and they will raid your house and take your guns from you. Now, the issue is not about guns. The issue is about a judicial system that Scott can go and say, hey, Steve's crazy and I'm really afraid to be around him, and some judge without due process will deem me uh, undesirable because of my gun ownership today, because of my homeschooling tomorrow, because of my Bible reading the day after, because of my conservative views, they just move the goalpost, and that's already law in California. It's coming. It's coming, just like it did in Nazi Germany. And the church, well, we're ten- taking a stand against darkness, aren't we? We're all about preaching the gospel, and the church has turned into entertainment factories. The church has turned into these mega churches where you've got these, you know, personality pastors that are going around, start, you know, putting on this incredible show of, of telling people things that they want to hear. And I mean, the church doesn't stand for light and darkness anymore. The family, the divorce rate in the Christian church now is greater than a divorce rate for non-professing believers. In the family, we, we have capitulated to the culture. And again, this is my opinion based on what I see in Scripture. We pitch our kids to a secular entity to train them, to send them away to college, to train them under a godless institution to be able to be, I don't know, lawyers and doctors and, and stuff like that in the culture out there. And yet we refuse to even open up a Bible and teach them at home. Why? His fathers have dropped the ball. 
And I, I'm too busy. I've got my own career. I just feel uncomfortable doing that. We'll take him to church for one or two hours a week, and that should be enough. Oh, and, and then we'll take him to vacation Bible school where they'll make balloons, and then that'll, that'll be enough to let them stand up against the onslaught that's against them. Scripture clearly teaches bad company corrupts good character. And just so that you and I will understand the gravity of that, the Lord tells us, don't be deceived in thinking it won't. Bad company corrupts good character every single time. And we don't even care. We align ourselves with unbelievers. We do evangelistic dating. We get married to people that aren't even saved. We, we, we do all the things the scripture tells us will shipwreck our faith and destroy our family. And we don't care because the culture has determined what our faith is rather than you and I standing up and being the godly people he's ordained us to be. And why is that? Because our Christianity is not that important to us anymore. It's something that we do rather than something that we are. You know, I, again, I, we talked about this at demands class. It was, it was so amazing. You know, and I'm not dissing on anybody because we're all like this. Men have been so feminized by our culture and by the church that we don't think we can ever say anything at church. We don't want, we don't want to say anything in our family. Whatever she wants. Well, no, I'm asking you as the head of your family, male husband, what, what, what should we do? I don't know. It's whatever my wife wants. <sighs> okay. You know, in, in church, can I, uh, can I get somebody to pray? Even in this congregation, 90% of the time, it's a woman. I'll pray. With a man. I just kind of feel uncomfortable praying. Then write your prayers out. Then pray from the heart. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a leadership issue. It's a, it's a spiritual issue that we have and our culture just feeds it. Feeds, again, I'm shocked and I don't know who came up with this agenda, but I'm shocked and I, I point this out every time we're watching television. Just notice every time there's a car commercial with a husband and wife driving in a car, the wife is always driving. Why is that? Is it because the wife is the one that makes most of the purchases of the car? I don't think so. It's the fact that there's some sort of agenda. There's, there's something going on here. Not that it's wrong for wives to drive cars, but it's almost like a, you know, you put the seatbelt on, honey, and uh, make sure that you sit back, and here's a little toy for you, and, and I'll take us, and I'm in control, and I'm driving. That's the way our culture is going. And you see this even on car commercials over and over and over again. Well, who came up with that idea? What is this agenda going on? It's a demasculating of leadership of men, godly men who stand up and say, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. But if she's not okay with it, really? And then we wonder why we're in the situation that we are right now. Let's not be serious. Let's just get serious for a second. Our nation must decline. We've talked about that. It's not included in end-time eschatology. God has a couple veiled references in the book of Ezekiel to our nation. We are the protector of Israel. We're the greatest power in the world. So therefore, Israel is not afraid of Russia coming against them, her Gog and Magog and all the Muslim nations because we're there as her defender. Well, in the end times, it'll be the Antichrist which makes a covenant with Israel because we are gone. 
We're just, we're not even a, a, a functioning nation anymore. Do, do we die like, like Rome did by corruption from the inside? It appears we're going in that direction. Because you need to understand the greatest days for our country are behind us. We're on this slide downward and God's word shows that. And so what are we to do? The scripture talks about that there are great and wonderful promises in his word, unbelievable promises that if we believe them, that it will absolutely change our life. But in order to believe them and act on them, it takes some sort of unction, some sort of not leaning on my own understanding and in all my ways acknowledging him for God to be able to work some incredible things out in our life. I was reading a book by Andrew Murray. And it was, uh, it was a conference he was given talking about prayer. And some of the pastors that were there in South Africa, they were asking the question, why is the church so prayerlessness? Why is there so much prayerlessness in the church? And the answer was unbelief. But then the question was then asked, unbelief in what? In the sovereignty of God? Well, no. In God's goodness and the substitutionary atoning death of Jesus Christ? Well, well, no. In, in what the scripture says, well, no. It's just in the power of prayer. The prayer really changes things. The prayer really matters. Instead, we pray and we ask God to bless our efforts, and then we don't believe he will, so we just try to manage the best way we can, limping towards Laodicea. The church has been given a glorious position to be light in darkness. It's a military outpost. If you'll notice in Scripture, Paul uses that imagery all the time. You know, the full armor of God and you know, take up the sword of faith. I mean, the, the idea is that the church, although it has an infirmary for people who are injured in the battlefield to get well, our church is not a hospital for hurting people. Our church is a military command, a military outpost, taking its stand against darkness. And yet many of us in the church are AWOL because we're too busy dealing with civilian things. Paul talks about that. A soldier does not worry about civilian things. He's worried about defending the faith and standing for his king. But if I do that, it means I'm going to have to change my behavior. It means I won't be able to go see the joker you know, I really want to see that movie, but I can't see the Joker because it has like, you know, 45 F words and all that kind of stuff in there. And then all my friends are going to think that I'm kind of crazy. And I really want to see all these things and listen to all these things and, and be so culturally relevant that everybody will think I'm cool. Is that the point? The Lord said friendship with the world is hatred to God. Anyone who chooses our choice to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Is that what we want? That's what's happening. I mean, it's happening to the church. Pretty soon, you will have pastors that will begin taking video clips from the movie Joker and trying to make sermons out of it because everybody wants to come and see something cultural. I mean, it's insane what's going on today. The scripture says that we are to be holy. To what extent? Holy like uh, uh, Billy Graham? Holy like um, the Apostle Paul? No. Holy like I am holy. His last calling to the church for us to live in unity. Well, you know what? I'm not even gonna, I'm not even going to open up my mind to the fact that it's even possible for Baptists to get along with Methodists. But how about just family members? 
How about just members in an own congregation? Instead of fighting and arguing and church splits and factions and, and I mean, we're called to live in unity with each other because our personal preferences have to be subjugated to the command and calling of Christ. And when we look, I'll be real honest with you, a lot of people I talk to and sometimes I even have these feelings. When I look at the standard and I look at my failures, sometimes it makes you want to quit, doesn't it? You know what? Just, I'm out of here. Yeah, I, I don't, I feel bad about not praying enough. Well, why don't you? I guess because I don't believe it really matters. You know, I'm, I'm working real hard for what? I don't even know. I'm, uh, and I'm striving over here for what purpose? I don't know. Something, I don't, I don't know. And so we find people, they, they back off from the faith. Their faith becomes minimalized to them and, and they do everything that they did when they were lost to make themselves feel good. Because the spiritual fervency and passion that comes from an intimate relationship with him has evaporated. That's the situation we're facing right now. And it's only going to get worse. And then, of course, there's the terrible problem of the fact that in our DNA is this Laodicea in church age, which means we're in charge. It's got to be about me. Everything's about me. It's like narcissism is the new buzzword out there. I'm telling you, it's like a disease that has just become full circle and is all fed many times by social media. A selfie. What is a selfie? What's a picture of me? Well, great. Who takes that picture of you? Who wants the picture of you that says, hey, can I take, oh, I take a picture of me. Why do you take a picture of you? Because I think I look cool and I want to post it so that you can look at it and you think I'll look cool too. And I do this 75 times a day. Really? The whole focus is on us, how we look and how we act and what we eat and where we go and how you feel and how what you want. Oh, but it's not that way in church. When it comes to church, it's all about Christ. Really? Really? If it's about us, then by definition, it's never about him. Never about him. It's got to be about us. It's either us or him. And like I shared with you a couple weeks ago, we never even ask him. These questions, Lord, what kind of music do you like? I challenge you to do this. Get online and just look at churches. Look at churches that have nice websites and people over 200 people in attendance. And as you, they're all the same. When you click the church, you'll have this big banner that kind of rotates. And on the banner, there'll be five or six slides. Four of them will be of the band. Close up of the guitar, the drummer playing. Maybe there's one of the guy preaching and rather hip clothes with the pointy hair and all that kind of stuff. Maybe there's a coffee cup, a Starbucks cup where they were able to get a coffee. So wow, I can go to that church. I can listen to a rock and roll show. I can have some coffee. I can hear an affirming message from a guy who looks pointy head and, and kind of cool. And because that's what church is all about. I mean, and every, almost every church is like that. Why? Why is music so important? Because if we don't like the music, we don't come. So it's all about us. You know, Bible translations. Well, we could learn Hebrew and Greek, but that's too hard. So we could take a, like the King James, but I don't like that. And so we, we dumb down the, the Bible translations to an NI, or to a NASB, which is on a 10th grade level, and an NIV, which is on an 8th grade level. And then the, we really like the Amplified Bible because it kind of just tells a story. Jesus, what kind of scripture accurately portrays your word? 
And whatever it is, that's what I want to do. How long should the messages be? And what time should church start? Well, that's up to me. You know, if, if you can't finish, I had actually a deacon tell me this one time. If you can't be done by 12 o'clock, you ain't got nothing worth to say past that. Oh, so it's all about you. It's all about you. It's all about us, what we want. And the content of the message, and I shared this with you a couple of weeks ago, the birth of the seeker-sensitive church movement. How horrific is that? Church is designed for the saints of God to worship their God, but we want to make it so lost people can come and feel comfortable. Really? Really? How do we do that? Well, we take out blood and we take out the cross. We take out sin. We take out anything that makes them feel bad. We do music that they can kind of relate to and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and that's, that's the, the trend in America today. Because it's all about the Sunday show. And it's all about how it makes me feel. Hey, I really enjoyed church today, Pastor. It made me feel good. Hey, you know, Pastor, I'm not coming back anymore. Why? Because I just don't feel good when I come to your church. I'm going to go to this church because it makes me feel good. You see it? I mean, even in the church, we live in this layout of sea and age and we capitulate to the culture. Rough times are coming. And so the question we need to ask every one of us, especially men, leaders of your family, here's the questions. What are you to do when you see the darkness encroaching on everything that you hold dear? Your ability to, to, to maybe even be an entrepreneur, your ability to, to be able to have a, con- a, or a conversation about biblical truth, your ability to go to a church that you want to, your ability to, to, to decide what medical treatment you want your kids to have, whether you want them vaccinated or not vaccinated, where you want to send them to school, whether you had the choice of homeschool or Christian school or public school, all those choices, whether you want to own a firearm, whether you want the freedom to do this, what happens When little by little, all that freedom is taken away, what are you going to do? Well, I'm 64 years old. I only got about 10, 15 years left. I can can hang hang on. Yeah, but you got kids and grandkids. And they're looking to you for leadership. They're looking for you who's known Christ longer than they have. What are you going to do? How do we raise our kids in this deeply divided, hostile environment? Well, we just pack them up and we pray for them and we send them to... uh, We send them to public school or we let them hang around all the kids of the culture because after all, bad company doesn't corrupt good character. You're being deceived. You're being deceived. You're calling the Lord a liar. How do I remain light in darkness when light now becomes intolerant? And pretty soon light now will be a crime. And pretty soon some of the messages that I preach here will get me fined or jailed. Who's going to take my place if I'm gone? Oh, we just disband because maybe we'll just talk about other things besides exactly what the Bible teaches. Where are we going to find our strength for this journey the Lord has laid out for us? Where do we go for encouragement? And what are we going to do when all that we know and all that we love is radically changed? I'm telling you, and I've been telling you this for a couple of years, I hope you can see it that we are living in Nazi Germany in 1932. In 1932. You know, I should have, I should have brought that quote with you. One of the, 
One of the Christian leaders then said, you know, the Nazis came after the gypsies, and because I wasn't a gypsy, I didn't say anything, and so they're gone. And then the Nazis came after the factory workers, and then they came after the communists, and they came after this person and that person and this person, and because, and the Jews, because I wasn't a Jew, I said nothing, and finally they came after me, and there was no one left because everybody else was gone. It's happening. It's happening. It's prophesied that it will happen. And so what are we to do? This could be our finest hour. This could be the time when we soar and actually put Christ first in everything. Let me ask you a couple more questions. We say that we, we say that we love the Lord and we say that we believe his words. I'm using the same two scriptures that we talked about on Wednesday that I didn't know that Vic was going to share with you here. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. We all can quote that passage. Listen very carefully to this passage. Do, do, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not half your heart, but everything that you are, all your heart, will, mind, and emotion. The Hebrew word there is leb. It's a word that can be translated soul. You trust in the Lord with your finances, with the way you raise your kids, with your future, with your sincerely held convictions that mean nothing compared against Christ's truth. You trust in the Lord with everything that you are, do. And the antithesis of that is something that you don't do. You lean on your own understanding. You get support from your own understanding. Yes, Lord, I know your word says this, but I think... Maybe this would happen. Or I don't believe, I, I don't have enough faith to see it your way, so I'm going to go ahead and, and do it over here. Oh, Lord, I know what your word says, but I think you're wrong. I'm going to lean on my own understanding. Do, and then don't. And then do again in all your ways. Even the ways that you think you're leaning on your own understanding, you acknowledge him. That word is yada. It means you have an experiential love for him. And the promise is that he will tell you exactly what to do, that he will take away your fear and inhibition, that he will give your life purpose, that he will show you exactly the path that you're to follow. There'll be no questions anymore. You'll have this intimate relationship with the Lord that's so powerful that you will ask him a simple question and he will speak to you. Now we've gone over these verses over and over and over, and yet the church in general, even in my own life, I struggle with this, and you probably do too, we still don't do this. Why? I think God's a liar. No, I don't think that's it. I think leaning on your own understanding is the most important thing in your life. It isn't mine, because I live in Laodicea. No, I, I will trust in the Lord as long as it agrees with me leaning on my own understanding. And I'll even acknowledge you if I agree with what you're doing. But God forbid if I trust in the Lord and you clearly show me something I don't want to do, then I refuse to do it and I will lean on my own understanding. And the promise here that he will direct your path is voided. He won't direct your path. He'll let you go out there in the middle of darkness and he will... He will chastise you as a loving father does his son. And you will find in Romans chapter 1 that God will give them up and give them up and give them up. You have the freedom to experience the consequences of your own sin. We've been doing this as a culture and a church for decades. And we wonder why in the situation we are right now. 
Do we believe it or do we not? And if we do believe it, it takes some radical changes in our life that are going to be painful. Painful. And until we have an intimate relationship with God and he's able to take away that pain, we'll never do it. Pain's too great. I love this, my friends, more than I love you, Jesus. Then admit it. I refuse to give up one for the other. And the consequences are the life in which we're living right now. Or this one. It's another verse that we looked at on Wednesday. Matthew 6.33, there's this, this long, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, and then bam, this is what most men struggle with. The summary. But seek first, first, above your job, above your money, above paying your mortgage off, above taking care of your, your business, even taking care of your family. Seek first, above anything, the kingdom of God. The very kingdom Jesus preached about all the time. Seek first his kingdom. What will that mean? And his righteousness. Because his kingdom is a kingdom of righteousness. So you must seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And if you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then everything we struggle with, if you read the rest of that passage, everything. Where am I going to eat? Where am I going to, how am I going to be dressed? What's going to happen here? I worry about tomorrow and all that kind of stuff. Who's going to take care of my kids and my family? It's not your job anymore. It's God's job to do that. Do we believe it's true? Well, sure. We'll affirm it in Sunday school class. But do we live it? Yeah, when it's not too painful. But if it gets too painful, no, I'm going to seek first my desire, my wants, what I just think is, is right. I'm going to lean on my own understanding. I'm not going to trust the Lord and all those things. And then I wonder why my faith gets shipwrecked. And I'm not going to have the faith necessary to persevere during the bad times that are coming. We're running out of time. I've been telling you that for a couple of years now. But every time I turn on the news, it's accelerating. It's just accelerating what's happening. So what's the solution? It's something that's called a faith prepper. Oh, I don't like that word prepper. Well, you are a prepper. Whether you like it or not. No, preppers have a bad connotation like the doomsday preppers they had on television. Listen, you have more money in the bank. Do you have a savings account? If you have a savings account, you're a prepper. Because a savings account means I want to save some money so that if I don't have enough money currently, I prepared for a, a, a contingency in the future by having some sort of savings account. Do you have life insurance? Do you have health insurance? Do you have homeowner's insurance or car insurance? Well, yes. Well, why? Because I can't afford if my car wrecks to get another car. So I'm going to prep for that and get some company and pay them money so that if I do wreck my car, I've already prepared for that in advance and I'll be able to buy a new one. We're all preppers. But a faith prepper is different. A prepper well, let me just say this. It's time for each of us to begin prepping for the task that's placed in front of us. And that's to be light in darkness. It's to be, it, he has blessed us so that we're going to have an opportunity to stand in front of a judge 
or a jury or our neighbors and actually communicate to them that we truly are a believer in Christ and there's enough evidence of Christ in us to convict us of that. Before, we never even had that opportunity and we didn't even care because we're too busy doing our own things. But now that opportunity is being placed before us. Praise God. And the greatest miracles in the New Testament and the Old Testament always happen when his people are being persecuted, yet they hold on to their faith and they pray these kind of confession prayers for themselves and for their children and their father's house like Vic read today from Nehemiah. A faith prepper or prepper in general is someone who sees the danger ahead and is willing to sacrifice today for the safety and well-being of his, the ones that he love for tomorrow. I've talked with a lot of people about end times and about being a prepper, and the ones that don't always say this, well, God will just take care of me. And how's he going to do that? Rain down manna? Even when he rained down manna, he required them to go get it. And I found that most people who don't want to be a prepper is because they don't want to spend the money and sacrifice today for the safety and security of their own families. A man who does not take care of his family, their needs first, is worth, is, is worse than an unbeliever. He's an infidel, if you really read it. But a faith prepper is somebody, we're not talking about material possessions, although we will talk about that at some point in time. But to grow my faith, and I'm primarily talking to you men out there, to grow my faith to the point that I'll be able to stand in the gap for my family. That when my wife, when, when ter- bad things happen to Christians in my family, that my wife will look to me for spiritual leadership and I won't turn to her and go, what do you think, honey? What should I do, honey? Help me, honey. Instead, I'm the man. Follow me as I follow Christ. And it means a sacrifice. It means giving up the things are part of the things that we're so devoted to that are temporal at best. I saw this quote. I'm going to make a T-shirt out of it. Talking about being a prepper. It says, Noah built the ark before it started to rain. Nobody else did because they didn't believe. They didn't see the signs of the time. Let me just share a, a proverb with you. I love this one. Two types of people here. The first one, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself. That's what a smart guy does. You know, if uh, if you're walking down the road and all of a sudden this gang of marauders start coming from you, probably what you do is get off the road and hide in the bushes till they pass, right? No, I'm going to stand there and pay the penalty. A simple man, just pass on, I don't care, and are punished. Two types of people here. Both of them foresee evil. But only one of them responds. One of them see the same danger as the prudent man, but consider it nothing because I just don't want to deal with that right now because I just need to, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. I want to watch, you know, Breaking Bad and, and I want to go see the Joker and I want to do all those kind of things and I'll get spiritual later and I'll let somebody else spiritually lead my kids. Or you're the kind of man that sees the signs of the time. They see the things that are going on and decide, no, for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And that's going to take some work on my part, maybe some confession in front of my wife and kids. I am so sorry that I put everything else in front of you. 
and your spiritual well-being. I've been more busy trying to get advancements at work and, and being able to get you a new house and being able to do all the things that I want to do that I have failed you and my kids in being a spiritual leader. But with God's help, I will do that no longer. Well, my job makes me work 14 hours a day. Then quit your job and go get another job. Well, then I can't afford my house. Then get a smaller house. It's all choices. It's all choices. Faith, prepper. Last couple questions. So how can we, as individual believers in a church, work and sacrifice to be the kind of person that prepares spiritually for what's about to happen to be able to minister to my wife and my kids? To have that kind of relationship that my wife looks to me for spiritual leadership, that my kids expect me to be all about God, that they actually can remember times. And I again, I've read this in so many autobiographies where great <laughs> men of God will say, yeah, the most... The most um, indelible image of my father is when I would get up early in the morning, I would find him alone on his knees in the living room praying to God with his Bible open. I really realized right then that, that my dad was a man of God. And it seems like men, boys, who see that, or girls who see that in their parents, all of a sudden want to emulate that. How many times have your kids seen you do that? How many times have your kids seen you get up early and open up the Word of God and, and, and pray to Him before you start your day? In our culture, probably not much because that's not a trait that's honored. But if you're going to be a faith prepper, it's time. It's time that we put Him first. What is the shortest distance between two points? A straight line. The shortest distance between where you are spiritually and where you need to be spiritually? And the very key to intimacy with the Lord, and, and probably if I asked you, the one area in your life that is most lacking would be prayer. It'd be prayer. We love Bible study. We hate prayer. And I can tell that by, especially for us men, how much little we pray publicly. And again, I'm making an assumption here, and it may be wrong, but I'm making an assumption that if we're afraid to pray publicly, it probably means we don't pray that much privately. Because if I had an intimate relationship with the Lord and I talked to him every day and the highest point of my day is when I got away with him in, in, in a quiet place and just poured out my heart to him and he spoke back to me and he overwhelmed me with how wonderful he was, then it would be a natural kind of conversation that I would have like with anybody else. It's prayer. It's prayer. We're going to start with this simple one. Just prayer. To pray before anything. So here's what I'm asking you to do. For the next 21 days, the next 21 days, the next three weeks, then I'm asking you that every day, and I'm going to help you with this, every day that we make prayer a little more simple and we learn to pray God's word. In other words, we're going to let God dictate our prayer. We're going to make it really easy so our minds won't wander, because I know that happens with me a lot when I get ready to pray. If I don't pray out loud, because praying out loud, I'm speaking it, and I'm hearing it, and I'm thinking it, and it allows me more senses to stay focused. If I'm praying just in my mind, it's like going on some website and clicking a couple links, and the next thing you know, you're somewhere far beyond where you even thought you would be. Your mind just kind of wonders and things flash before you. And then we go, oh gosh, I can't believe it. That, that was terrible, God. I feel so bad about praying. Oh, time's up. Got to go. 
And so we're going to try to focus our prayers on praying God's word. And, and I want to give you three considerations. And I'm going to help you with this, this for the next three weeks. Three considerations. Number one, when you pray God's word, here's what you don't do. You don't lay on the floor and just moan for three hours. Oh, I just pray all oh, and all that kind of stuff. And kind of blank your mind with prayer. That's a lot of that is like meditation. It's like transcendental meditation. And when you erase your mind of anything, you will find you will hear voices that aren't necessarily God's. Your prayers need to be focused because Christ's prayers were focused. There is a direct, listen carefully, there's a direct connection with the degree in which your minds are shaped by Scripture and a degree to which your prayers are answered. There's a one-on-one correlation. And you find that from the word of Jesus. If you abide in me, and you know the truth, and you know what I know, and you know what I've taught you, and my words abide in you, two requirements. I'm resting in him, and his word is resting in me. My mind is shaped by God's word when I'm getting ready to pray. Then I'll ask whatever I desire, because I know my desire is going to be shaped by God himself, and it shall be done for you. Very simple. So we're going to be learning how, and maybe you already know, we're going to be practicing together praying God's word. Two, listen very carefully. God only answers prayers and petitions that his son had a part in asking. Always. First John 5. Now here's the confidence that we have in him. That we have asked anything that he has had a part in asking. Because we know what we're asking is according to his will. It's not our desire. It's not our will. It's not just shooting arrows in the sky. It's not, you know, crazy prayers. It's, it's, it's according to his will that he hears us. And we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we asked of him. I've shared this story with you before. I was at West Franklin Baptist Church and on Wednesday night, we would have a prayer time and a, and a Bible study time it was really more Bible study than prayer time. And I asked the people in the congregation to share some of the things going on in their life, like I asked you to do. And one lady said, oh, God worked out this incredible miracle. I mean, there's just people next door to us, and they, they just listen to this loud rock and roll all the time, and it just drives me crazy. And, and so I just prayed around their house three or four times, and I asked God to burn it to the ground. And you know what? He did. It caught fire. It burned to the ground. Praise God. Really? Like that's God's will? It's crazy. Then I decided I ain't asking nobody what's going on in their life anymore. (laughs) Still do it with you. If we ask anything according to his will. Number three, and I haven't given you the scripture references of this, but the early church prayed scripture. You'll find that in in Acts chapter 2 and other places. And if the early church prayed scripture, so should we. What praying scripture means is this, that we read God's word in the spirit of prayer and we let the meaning of the verses become a prayer and inspire our thoughts as we're praying them back to him. It will happen every single time you open up God's word and it will happen every single time no matter where you're reading. It's really amazing. It's easier if you're struggling with sin, it's easier to have this happen in Psalm 51 than it is Numbers 4. 
But the idea is the fact is God's word is inspired and will minister to you as you do that all the time. For example, I'm just going to give you a couple of these. 23rd Psalm. Turn to that, would you please? 23rd Psalm. Most of the Psalms are prayers. Very familiar passage. We know this one. I'm really struggling with some things. Seems like, you know, turmoil in my life is getting greater and greater, and I really need to hear from the Lord. I need some encouragement from the Lord. I need, I need something from Him. And so I read the 23rd Psalm, and I'm turning it into a prayer. The Lord is my shepherd. You are God. You are my shepherd. I mean, you take care of me. You, you're always there for me. You're, you're leading me. You, 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 you hold me as a tender place in your heart. I just thank you for the fact that you're on my shepherd. And because you're my shepherd, I don't have to worry about anything. I'm not quoting Matthew 6.33. I'm realizing that God is my shepherd. I, therefore, I won't want. I, will, I have lack of nothing because you're always there for me. Your history with your people is the fact that you always met their needs. God, thank you for that. Thank you for the fact that you make me. Even when I don't want to, even when I'm stubborn and rebellious and want to go over there where the toxic weeds are and, and, and the places I shouldn't be, that you make me, because you're my shepherd, lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside still waters, not raging waters that can have me swept away. And you, God, you restore my soul. And you just turn these into prayers to him. Isaiah 51, um, I meant, sorry, that's really supposed to be Psalm 51 that you can read about creating me a clean heart, O God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, I have some decisions that I need to make and I don't know what I need to do. I know what I think I need to do, but I, 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 I okay. I'm not trusting with the Lord with my own, all my heart. I am leaning on my own understanding based on my experience, my knowledge, my, my what I think it is. And since my knowledge doesn't trump his word, I'm going to acknowledge you in all my ways because I need you to direct my path no matter how costly it must be. Romans 8. I don't feel loved. I don't feel supported. I don't feel taken care of. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Thank you, God, that you don't. You know, I'm convinced in either height or death or, or on and on and on. You turn these into prayers, these encouraging words that inspire you. And it will teach us over the next 21 days to do that. Primarily, what I'm going to be looking at is Ephesians 1 and 2. So here's what I'm asking you to do. For the next 21 days, I'll be sending you an email. I'll be sending you at night about 7 o'clock the night before. And included in that will just be a, a passage from Proverbs 1 and 2, you don't have to use those passages. You can pray any scripture that you want. But for some of you that don't really know where to turn or would like to do this together, I will just send you a passage. I'll break it down a little bit. I'll give you some suggestions about that. And we're going to go through, for those of you who would like, go through uh, Proverbs, uh, Ephesians 1 and 2 over the next 21 days trying to turn those statements about who you are in Christ into prayers. If there's other passages that you would rather do, uh, do them. Do them. This, this, isn't, this isn't required of everybody. But just make sure that somehow over the next 21 days we're taking time to pray his word. Fair enough? Okay. 
next Sunday. Yeah, what I would like to have happen is I'd like to share a few introductory remarks, and I would like every person in here to share something that what God has done with you over the last seven or the next seven days in your prayer life by just praying God's word. Every single person. But I'm asking you, pray. Pray the pray. God's Word, spend some time in prayer. Have your prayer focused in God's Word. Have your mind aligned to His Word so you'll know what His will is and you should experience some sort of revival in your heart. And then as an encouragement to everybody else, I would love to hear from that from you. doesn't have to be long. What we're just going to ask you to do is just kind of share so we can all be encouraged. And those of us who didn't do it the first week, it started out real good, but I, you know, I got this business taken care of, and it's not really on my radar right now. And oh, that was a nice sermon Steve preached, but it didn't make me feel good. Well, maybe be encouraged by the fact that their wife is experiencing some sort of revival, and they're not because they spend a little more time in God's Word and in prayer than we are. Amen. So I'm asking you, if you would, to make a commitment and join with me on that. Again, I'll be sending you an email out every night beforehand. And you can use that as a guide or, or not. But there should be no excuse for us not having everything we need to be able to pray God's word for three weeks. Amen? Let me pray.